this is Radio Maria and our weekly program, as I was saying, with Father Ewan Marley Opie of Blackfriars, the Priory of St. Michael the Archangel here in Cambridge. Good morning, Father Ewan. Good morning to you. Thank you so much for joining us once again. Father Ewan has been taking us most recently through the penitential psalms. Last week we looked at Psalm 38 and 52. And today, hopefully, if there's time, Father Ewan will be taking us through Psalm 102, 130 Mm -hmm. and 143. So that sounds like a a lot to get through. So uh, without ado, let's, let's begin and over to you. Thank you, Father Ewan. Okay, well, thank you. I'll begin with a short prayer. These psalms himself, after all, are prayers. So we pray to your Heavenly Father that we see in penance, not sadness, but joy. Because you love to forgive, you love to show mercy. Thinking of our sins is always thinking of your love. We never lose sight of that, that it's a way to your love, a way to your presence. Amen. So I've been talking about the penitential psalms. As I was saying, I told me to repeat this phrase, um, the penitential psalms is one of the ways of subdividing some of the psalms by, made by Cassiodorus, a commentator in the 6th century AD. There are many ways of dividing the psalms, but penitential psalms is a standard name, sometimes called psalms of confession. I, I discovered that Luther, Martin Luther called them the Pauline psalms, not because Paul wrote them, but because I presume he thought they fitted with Paul's attitude to God. Um, and we've done the first four psalms, now we're the last three. And one of the questions to ask is, are they really that penitential? We talk of sin, but not all the time. They also ask for God for things, complain a lot. You could call them psalms of complaint. But the important thing is they're very much in the first person. They are psalms where the psalmist speaks for himself or possibly herself. The psalms that they've been saying have a rather alarming tendency to switch the person. One time they talk for themselves, sometimes they say we, sometimes they say you to God, sometimes they say you plural to whoever, possibly fellow Israelites or fellow worshippers. In Psalm 54, not one of the penitential psalms, there's a very dramatic moment where he turns to a single person and says, you're my friend, whom he accuses of betrayal. The penitential psalms are very much in the first person, not entirely, but mostly. I, me, it is a person speaking. And we'll see that with, say, Psalm 130. Well, actually, I'll go back a bit first. Um... Psalm 102, that's the psalm I haven't done yet. Hear my prayer, O Lord, let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my distress. Incline your ear to me. Answer me speedily in the day when I call. Well, very much first person, me, I, my distress, also you, because he's speaking to God, so your face, your ear. These are symbolic, of course, of God's attention. The face, particularly, is a favourite way of speaking in Hebrew. It's often simply translated as presence. 
you know, some translations talk about in your presence, others are more literally say before your face. Of course, we cannot see God's face, it's hidden. But the psalmist seems to be aware that there is a sense in which we do see God's face in the sense that we understand his presence, his, his care, his concern, his power, his serenity. Do not hide your face from me, means that there are times when we feel that presence and there are times when we don't. And it's not just emotional, it's also to do with circumstance. The psalmist aren't simply saying, I don't feel happy, I don't know why. There's always a sense that there are some very clear, objective reasons for feeling distress and sorrow. The psalmist then goes on with a rather difficult passage to read. It's very grim. And he speaks not so much of his sadness as the fact that his life is ending. For my days pass away like smoke, and my bones burn like a furnace. My heart is stricken and withered like grass. I'm too wasted to eat my bread. Because of my loud groaning, my bones cling to my skin. It's images of illness, but I don't think we should take it too literally. It's the effects of sorrow and sadness. Not necessarily saying that the psalmist is dying at this point. It's rather that the joy of life has gone from him and also perhaps he finds it difficult to eat. It's not a lack of food, but a, a lack of sense of the joy of life. As I say, never reduce it just to emotion either. The psalmist lives in this middle world where the emotions are caused by real sufferings, real difficulties, and also, I should say, real sins. But at the same time, these descriptions of illness always have a certain metaphorical meaning. They're a way of explaining in physical terms a sense of disease, unease, the sense of worry and fear. Also the sense that they shouldn't be feeling this, not in God's presence. No, that is summed up by this, do not hide your face from me. Seems to be blaming God, but it's not blaming God, but rather asking God to resolve this lack, this pain, this suffering. One reason you can see it, it is partially metaphorical is that the psalmist then goes on to what is clearly metaphors or similes. Rather odd similes, it's the same simile three times with three slight variations. I am like an owl of the wilderness, like a little owl of the waste places. I lie awake, I am like a lonely bird on the housetop. That's the New Revised Standard Version translation. Most translators and commentators struggle to really say what kind of birds he's talking about. Owl is New Revised Standard Version. Others just call it the desert bird or the lonely bird. And I think it's partly a metaphor because when you hear, say, owls singing at night, as we sometimes do, I hear it in our garden in our prior in Cambridge sometimes, it always sounds very lonely. Something strange about crying out in the darkness. But then the metaphor changes slightly, the, the bird on the housetop. You know, I stand the version says lonely bird, which is stretching the Hebrew a bit, but Others say it's more like a bird that flutters onto the housetop. You know, when you walk out into the street and the bird's suddenly startled and it immediately flies onto the roof to get away from you. So maybe may an image of fear. 
But the psalmist himself is seeing that there's something lacking in his human solidarity, his community. The images are clearly about being apart. And there's a sort of apartness, a sort of loneliness, which is actually takes away from our humanity, makes it less human. We feel separated from what a human being should be. Don't have to be with people all the time, but we do need to feel there are people in our lives. We do need to feel that we're not entirely alone. The owl of the wilderness, the owl of the waste places, are the little birds somewhere out there making its sounds, which no doubt have their own meaning, but to the human ear will always sound lonely and apart and sad. Then he goes on once again, and so often in the Psalms to talk of enemies. I've been saying about these enemies that they're real enough in the sense that in all the ancient world there was always a fear of invasion from other places. Israel itself has a long history of feeling besieged by enemies. But there's also a certain sense that enemies isn't so much someone who hates you as someone who doesn't understand you or doesn't know how to be friendly with you or sees you as a threat to them. All day long my enemies taunt me. So often the word shame comes up, not in the sense of guilt, but in the sense of triumph. One person wins over another. We become enemies to each other in the sense that we want to win against each other. Not because we hate the person, but because not understanding what happiness is, we see it in other people's loss. We don't understand victory, so we talk of defeat of other people. We think that is the victory. Of course it really isn't, not in Christ. Those that deride me use my name for a curse. That means that his life has gone so badly wrong that people say, I hope you end up like that guy. That's a curse. He's famous. And that's, that's a common usage. Israel itself often speaks of that, the idea that God's honour is bound up with the success of Israel. Jerusalem talks about your name is with the city. The name can be used as a symbol of failure, of uselessness. You can be famous for being not very good in your life and not doing well. But then... Uh, Elsewhere they say, but it's your name too, God, O Father. If we are the people of God, Israel, then if we are despised, and so are you. If our name is a bad name, so is yours. It's a very blunt way of speaking to God, but then the psalmist does speak very bluntly. The Old Testament generally speaks very bluntly, more for the thing that we should. Then I eat ashes like bread and mingle tears with my drink, even food and drink don't satisfy him. And that brings us back to the, the idea of the being stricken and weird like grass, his bones clinging to his skin. It's not lack of food then, it's rather a inability to enjoy food. And depression can stop people eating quite literally. Drug addiction can make people lose their appetite, drinking too much. There's an existential loss there that food and drink should be signs of joy, fellowship and community. It should awaken us gratitude. That's why we always make a big thing in religious life. In fact, all Christians should make a thing of making a thanksgiving before we eat. Because of your indignation and anger, for you have lifted me up and thrown me aside. 
My days are like an evening shadow, I wither away like grass. Which again, we have a difficult translation. Some say it's a lengthening shadow, some say it's the shadow that rather represents being prostrate because the shadow's in the ground. Evening shadows, a simple enough translation. I wither away like grass, very much the case in desert countries. If it's too hot and there's no rain, you will see grass change colour. Happens in Britain, and in fact will probably happen more and more as uh, we seem to be getting warmer summers. And then it turns to a moment of joy, the rest of the psalm. And it also starts to speak about creation as a whole. So before I come to that, that's a twist in the, the thinking of the psalm. It's a turn in the road. I think maybe we can stop for some music. Thank you so much, Father Ewan. Let's have a listen to Psalm 102 from poor Bishop Hooper. beautiful uh, rendition of Psalm 102 from poor Bishop Hooper and we're with Father Ewan and he's been talking to us about the psalm and uh, he has a few more things to say about it before moving on to Psalm 130 and 143. Back over to you Father Ewan. Okay as I was saying before the music break there's a sudden twist in the psalm and the twist is having complained about its, the psalmist's own unhappiness and unhealth. It suddenly turns to praising God. And more specifically, more specifically, he's praising him in Zion. I said in the first half that the name, he says, will be cut, my name becomes a curse, but other parts of the Old Testament is a warning well if our, if our name is a curse so is yours because this is your your land your your people your city and the twist is that he then starts talking about the name of the Lord your name endures to all generations the nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory and the Lord will build up Zion who will appear in his glory you will regard the prayer of the destitute who will not despise their prayer. Let this be recorded for a generation that comes so that the people yet unborn may praise the Lord. Now, he's now thinking about Zion. The servants hold its stones dear, they have pity on its dust. There I think the translation is a bit wrong. I think rather dust often means soil. And some people assume, many commentators assume that this is talking about Israel 
Jerusalem being destroyed, but I think it, stones could often mean precious stones. And soil means a flourishing city. My reason I give that is Ezekiel has a, a verse. They shall destroy the walls of Tyre, great taking city, and break down its towers. I will scrape its soil from it and make it a bare rock. And trust me, it's the same word there for soil. So it's not necessarily saying that this is a time when the city has been destroyed. Maybe written then, but the psalmist is more interested in the creation of the new people. And I use the word creation quite deliberately because I read a, a phrase, people yet unborn. Actually, the Hebrew says a people being created. And here the commentator thinks that means the people who will be created. Hebrew is rather loose, a bit tense, and that's possible, but the point is creation isn't just from nothing. It's not just saying the creation of the world, let there be light and there was light. There's also the creation of ways of living. To create Israel is a real creation. The more difficult creation because it involves cooperation, it involves our freedom. The church is created, and likewise, our sins damage the church, our unwillingness to live a good Christian life damages the church. Yet we are being created. A people being created, we praise the Lord. It's a more literal translation than a people yet unborn. But clearly we're looking for the future. The psalmist then, as I'll, I'll rush on a bit, talks about even though he has broken my strength in mid-course or the middle of days. He shortened my days. He says, Do not take me away at the midpoint of my life, you whose years endure throughout all generations. Long ago you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you endure. You see how God as creator is here personal to the life of the psalmist and also the life of the city, Zion. Who will sustain the city? Not just a pagan god who is merely a mysterious power with no explanation for their existence, but the God who created all things. And because God lives forever, we rely on him for our life. The psalmist isn't asking for eternal life at this point, he's just asking for a longer life. But longer life so they can appreciate at least that when he passes, when he goes on to where he will go, Life will go on under God. Long ago you laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. Then he admits that all of this must go. They perish but you endure. They will all wear out like a garment. You change them like clothing and they pass away. But you are the same and your years have no end. Possibly a reference to the garments of the Israelites in the desert which according to the story they wear for 40 years without wearing out. But really it's more the point that clothes are changeable, they come and go, and people are like clothing, they're not here forever. Nonetheless, the psalmist ends in a great note of triumph, the children of your servants shall live secure, their offering shall be established in your presence. So, Psalm 102. Uh, Psalm 130, or 129 in the Dewey translation, is a very well-known psalm. One of the two best-known psalms, The Lord is My Shepherd, I think is the other well-known psalm. But this psalm is one that's said quite a lot in many contexts, and it's 
the psalm out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. I'll say one thing about this psalm is it it's one of another group of psalms. It's grouped here as a penitential psalm, but there's also the group of Psalms hundred and twenty to hundred and thirty four, Hebrew numbering, which are called Songs of Ascent, because that's how they're introduced as Songs of Ascent. What does ascent mean? Well, Hebrews says you go up to Jerusalem, so that's an ascent. Some people think it's a more literal ascent up the stairway towards the temple, and you can still see some of those steps in modern Jerusalem. But the thing that's interesting in this psalm is how it begins, Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. De profundis in Latin, as it's often, this psalm is often called the De profundis. Now, the word depth occurs five times in the Old Testament. The other four times it occurs in a phrase, the depths of water, and clearly refers to the sea, the idea of drowning. That's possibly here as well, in this. But I think it's interesting, a song of descent, ascents followed by out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. Where do you ascend from? You ascend from the depths, from the deep places. Could be water. Um, if you ever found yourself underwater and has had to swim to the surface, you will swim very quickly, you shoot up. But I think for many people who don't swim, water is a very frightening thing, the idea of being lost, of being floundering and people often drown because they don't know how to get to the surface. I think here it's worth saying that for once the introduction, which many translations don't bother giving you because some of them are quite puzzling, they seem to be instructions to singers and musicians, but here a song of this ascent, out of the depths I cry to O Lord, that really goes together, it's ascending to God. Lord, hear my voice, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, Lord, who could stand? There's forgiveness with you, so it can may be revered. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than those who, those who watch for the morning, more than those who watch for the morning. If you know other translations, you might find that last bit a bit surprising. In many translations talk about the watchman who waits for daybreak. But Uriwaisan is more literal. Those who watch for the morning could well be watchmen in the city. I think it probably is, but there's also the fact that at night people wait for the morning. The darkness is a frightening place in the ancient world because who knows what's out there, who knows who may attack the city in the night. And also people need to sleep because they're working much more physical jobs than most of us do. Their lack of sleep means that they may not be able to do that work and they may even find themselves starving because they can't do the work. Night can be frightening. But there are always those who watch for the morning. But waiting for God is more important than waiting for the morning. It's a greater thing because God is greater than the dawn. Who is your hope in the Lord? With the Lord there is steadfast love of him is great power to redeem. The sea will redeem Israel from all its iniquities. And Psalm ends then with making an important point that even though it's a first-person psalm, the real redemption is Israel as a whole from all its iniquities. All the sins of Israel may hold Israel back from redemption, but God will not be defeated. And redemption is God's work, not ours.
So, I think we stop for some more music and then I'll finish some with 143, the last of the penitential psalms. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Father Ewan. Uh, again, from poor Bishop Hooper, we have Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord, hear my voice, let your ears hear my cry. If you, O Lord, kept a record of wrong, who could stand? O my God, who could stand? Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, hear my... This is Radio Maria. As I was saying with Father Ewan Marley and that was Psalm 130 from poor Bishop Hooper and I think we've got time to hear about Psalm 143. Thank you Father Ewan. Okay then, the last of the penitential psalms, quite near the end of the psalm book as a whole, 150 is the last one. And as many of the words that we would have heard if we've been following these psalms or listening to them, it picks up in many of the other words that we've heard, like supplication, faithfulness, chesed, righteousness, judgment. Do not enter into judgment with your servant. There's one thing that is quite striking and a bit different. Do not enter into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you, or just before you. No one living. And that's a very general statement about humanity. The Hebrew actually is no living thing is righteous before you, but obviously that applies to people. Although human beings being part of the earth are also very much embedded in the living ecology of the world. And the story of the fall rather implies that uh, there's a rift between human beings and animals. Because some animals were quite threatening. And you do get images of that in the Old Testament. The snake, obviously, but sometimes the wolf, the bear. But no living thing is righteous before you. Then the psalm goes back to himself. For the enemy has pursued me, crushing my life to the ground, making me sit in darkness like those long dead. And it was the contrast with life there, the living thing. Therefore my spirit faints within me, my heart within me is appalled. I remember the days of old, I think about all your deeds, I meditate on the works of your hands. I stretch out my hand to you, my soul thirsts for you like a parched land. Answer me quickly, my spirit fails, do not hide your face from me, I shall be like those who go down to the pit. The word pit is different from the word sheol here, it's a word that obviously represents the idea of death as falling into the ground. Now, implicit in the psalm is that although he talks about his own sin and he also mentions enemies, as these psalms often do, the real answer is that whatever people think of him, we're all of us unjust for God. We're all of us seeking redemption. The enemy may feel superior to the psalmist, whoever these enemies are, whether people in Israel are outside, these mockers, these people who wish to shame him. But the answer is not to say, well, I'm all right. You don't have a right to say this of me, but I'm saying, what you say of me is true of everybody. We're all in the same situation. We're all seeking redemption together. 
but we have to find it for ourselves. And in finding it for ourselves, we find it for all other people. Teach me the way I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Save me, O Lord, from my enemy, and I fled to you for refuge. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on a level, a level path. A level path is the path that's easy to walk on, but also the path that you feel is there for you. It's not flat by accident. It's been prepared. And the important thing here is the psalmist isn't just saying, forgive me, but also tell me what I should do. Lead me a path. I need to follow you. I need to do things. And I do them for your sake, but also for the sake of the world. It doesn't quite say he does it for the enemies, but of course Christ tells us to love our enemies. He tells us that we are doing it for our enemies. And it's not incompatible with what the psalmist is thinking, just not very explicit. For your namesake, O Lord, preserve my life, and your righteousness bring me out of trouble. In your steadfast love, cut off my enemies and destroy all my adversaries. Well, that might sound like he's wanting to destroy them, but um, but the the words for destroy there can mean basically just stop them, just stop them functioning against me, stop them being my enemies allow me to go forward. And the best way to stop people being your enemies is reconciliation. Not always possible. There are always wars. But even in a war, we should be looking for the possibility of peace. Even in a war, we should be looking for what we can do when the war ends. And any war that ends without reconciliation is a failed, failed war. It's common justification of war Carson says that in a war you should be seeking peace even if you get caught up in a war and the war itself will always be caused by sin on somebody's part but you may not have a choice but what you seek is peace and the psalmist ends with a very simple phrase which might not sound very important but it's actually quite unusual he says because I am your servant and the reason that's so important is that the ultimate solution is saying, well, whatever happens, I will serve you as best I can in the circumstances in which I find myself. And I will trust in you and I will walk in the path you send me. But if you cut off my enemies and destroy my adversaries, it's so I can serve you. So I'm asking simply to stop them stopping me from serving you. And here we have to bring in Christ, the ultimate servant, the ultimate servant of God. Christ is both the one who follows his Father and his humanity and his work of redemption, also the one who leads us. Follow me, take up your cross and follow me. And I've been saying this all through these talks in the Psalms that the key, one of the key words is this idea of the road, the path that we follow we have to go forward step by step, day by day. As long as we try to serve, we will serve. As long as we're open to seeing our life as service, it will be service of God. So, let's me finish the Psalms of Penitence. Um, I think it'll be a break next week for me. And then, um, I will come back to the Psalms, but 
in two weeks' time, I would like to switch to something from the Wisdom writings, which are later and very different in style. But also very important to explaining what it means to be a Christian. And also, of course, wisdom is what we all should seek in our life. I'll finish there then. God bless. Thank you, Father Ewan. Uh, we very much look forward to uh, your wisdom about wisdom and uh, thank you so much for opening up uh, the penitential psalms uh, for us in these last few weeks. God bless. And you. This was a Radio Maria podcast. If you enjoyed it, do please click like and subscribe on your podcast provider or leave us a review. Every bit of feedback helps increase our visibility and allows us to reach more people with the message of Christ's saving truth. And if you don't already, you can listen to Radio Maria live either online or on DAB in selected regions of the UK. We'd love for you to call in live and be part of the conversation. See our website, radiomariaengland.uk, for more details and a full schedule of programmes. And do please consider making a donation so that we can keep making more programmes like this. We are completely dependent upon the generosity of our listeners.